hard enough getting two eyewitnesses to a car accident to agree what happened. What can we do with 100 eyewitness accounts of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln? We'll talk about that with the editor of that book, Tim Good, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. On Sound Authors, you can expect the unexpected. Kent Gustafson, Ph.D., author, publisher, professional musician, and now talk radio show host, will not only entertain you, but with new books and guest authors from around the world, will interview talented, independent musicians showcasing their fresh new music. Plan to join Dr. Kent and friends each Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on World Talk Radio Studio A. Sound Authors, where authors sound off. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a swing set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadylocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors cried the second. I hope he the bathroom, cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org. And from energyhog.org, she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Tim Good, editor and author of We Saw Lincoln Shot, and also of a new book that we'll get to shortly on the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Uh, Before we do that, a quick mention, next week's guest will be A. Wilson Green, the director of the uh, Battlefield Park, Pamplin Park, uh, the Battlefield Park for the Petersburg Battlefields, a uh, private uh, operation as opposed to a a park service site, but really a fascinating uh, location that uh, everyone ought to visit if they get a chance. So for those uh, for battlefield aficionados, we've been away from uh, battle discussions for quite a few weeks here on Civil War Talk Radio. We'll be getting back to that next week, and uh, hope you will join me for that. But today we are discussing Abraham Lincoln, uh, different uh, elements in, in his time, given that this is the uh, 199th anniversary of his birth this month, February 2008. And in our first segment, we were talking about uh, the Lincoln assassination. Uh, uh, Tim Good, our guest today, has edited, uh, written the book, uh, We Saw Lincoln Shot, 100 Eyewitness Accounts. And we were just closing up discussing the difficulty of reconciling these uh, 100 accounts of anything, much less something so traumatic. And, Tim, I was fascinated by the uh, what you learned about uh, recency, uh, the, the recency effect. The more recently an event happens, the more accurately people recall it, so that over time uh, accounts change. 
uh, you found then, I gather, that, that some of the inconsistent things in what people remembered of the Lincoln assassination could be attributed to the fact that they had been telling these stories for, for many years before they wrote them down. Yeah, I think that would be a very accurate uh, statement, Jerry. And the other problem is they tend, there seemed to be a tendency to incorporate uh, other events that occurred inside the theater that they may not have witnessed into their accounts. So that by the time you reach, I'd say the 1870s, 1880s, there really are no accounts left that appear to be especially accurate. Whereas the ones that were recorded in 18, on April 14th on the evening, some of these diary accounts, some of these letters, as you read them, you really get the feeling that they're reliving the event, an event they just witnessed hours before, and are providing just the details that they observed. And in addition to the information that they put down, what's especially fascinating is some of the emotions that you also see contained in these letters and in some of these diaries. You can, you can see that, that these people that have been in Ford's Theater are very troubled by what they had seen, and they're especially fearful uh, for the future of their country, not knowing what may happen with Lincoln's death. Well, this, this question of memory said it really intrigues me on a personal level i know that anytime i tell a story uh i tend to get it wrong or at least my wife assures me that i'm getting it wrong uh she has an amazing memory and and remembers every detail uh correctly whereas i tell it differently each time and she points out gently no it's not how it was um i may be altering it for effect i'm an artist after all a historian uh Sure. Uh, I'm trying to, to create a narrative here, but uh, as far as getting the details accurate, it really helps to uh, to have that photographic memory that a few people seem to have. One detail that gets disputed in, in a lot of these accounts is what Booth actually said. You, you pointed out, he, uh, you quoted him as saying, Six Semper Tyrannis. Uh, do all the accounts agree that th that's what he said? No, that's an excellent point, Jerry. Uh, some of them say that he said this, the South shall be avenged, or the South is avenged. And when I looked at specifically focusing on the 1865 accounts, because those are really the ones that guided me through this process, when I lined them up, those accounts that suggested that he said something different were in the distinct minority. Just the overwhelming evidence suggested, strongly suggested, that he said six Semper Tyrannus, and that he said it from the stage. So, so we can conclude that was his uh, his comment, which certainly ties in with his motive for doing this. Right. The state monitor of Virginia, I mean, the thus always the tyrants, it was used as a rallying cry um, in, during the American Revolution against King George. So, Jared, absolutely, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, this, he chose that statement specifically to explain his reasons uh, for assassinating Lincoln. Now, if if it were up to the public, perhaps even to our listeners, we would continue this discussion the rest of the hour, uh, because this is what interests people. I, I had the experience last week of uh, talking to a kindergarten class here in Greenville and uh, spoke to them for about half an hour, as long as their attention span could, could take it. We talked about Lincoln, and they asked a lot of questions. Um, and uh, later in the day, my wife, who works at the school where the kindergarten was, 
went in their classroom and uh, they were all excited what they had learned and she said well what did you learn about Mr. Lincoln and the first mm, ten comments uh, he got shot he got shot with a bullet he got shot with a bullet in the head he got shot with a bullet in the back of the head uh, it was all about the assassination that's what the average six-year-old really knows about Abraham Lincoln really wants to, at least the six-year-old boys I should be specific here uh, they were fascinated with the whole assassination uh, bit. But uh, that's not all there is to Lincoln, obviously. Uh, indeed, the least of it uh, in, in many ways. And you've turned your interest and attention to uh, Lincoln's pre-presidential uh, career, notably the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Uh, how did you come to write about that, and, and, and what did you find? When I was uh, working at uh, Lincoln Home National Historic Site, uh, in the mornings, they typically conducted a 15, 20-minute uh, historical discussion with the interpretive staff there, and I, of course, would choose a different historical topic each day. So at one point, I decided we would have uh, seven days discussing the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and this forced me for the first time to actually read all the debates. And I was quite stunned as I read them. I noticed in, an inconsistent pattern in Lincoln's comments as opposed to a very consistent pattern in Douglas's comments. And it was quite fascinating to see how Lincoln changed uh, his statements depending upon which debate uh, he was at. Well, let, let's set the stage here. This takes place in 1858, uh, a couple years before the war. And uh, Lincoln and Douglas are running against each other for the uh, the Senate seat in Illinois. Um, why did Douglas even uh, agree to debate Lincoln, given that Douglas was the most famous politician in the country and Lincoln was a nobody? Uh, Jerry, that's an excellent, excellent question. And in reviewing the reasons and rationale of whether Douglas should debate Lincoln or not, I concluded that I thought it was not in Douglas's best interest to do so, because as you correctly stated, Douglas was far better known than Lincoln. Uh, he was well respected among uh, the Democrats and many um, others in Illinois. And if you look at the early parts of the campaign, you see Lincoln making a series of mistakes that Douglas just seizes upon immediately and uses to attack Lincoln. And it appears that one of Douglas's favorite attacks, as well as the Democrats against Lincoln, was Lincoln's tendency to follow Douglas throughout the state. Douglas would give a speech, Lincoln would stand up afterwards and say, well, if you want to hear me, come back to the same place this evening or tomorrow, and I'll give my remarks. And it really made Lincoln look much less in terms of his profile compared to Douglas. And I think Lincoln's advisors saw that this was not helping their candidate, that it did make him look in the weaker position. And so primarily, I think, due to the influence of Norman Judd, uh, they, Lincoln wrote Douglas a letter and asked him if he'd like to debate. And Douglas really should have turned him down. but. I believe that the letter hit Douglas in his ego, and he did not want to look like he was running away from somebody. And so he accepted it, and by accepting it, 
He inadvertently placed Lincoln on almost an equal plane with him by appearing on the same stage at the seven different debates and really elevated Lincoln's prominence both within the state of Illinois and throughout the country. So, uh, Douglas, you think, thought it, would, it wouldn't be that difficult, perhaps, uh, to defeat him. He's willing to take this challenge. Yes, I, I do think that Douglas appreciated uh, Lincoln's honest reputation. Um, his, his reputation is very intelligent, uh, successful lawyer. But I agree with uh, your question. I do not believe that Douglas thought that Lincoln was a real threat, that Douglas believed that he could prevail. And, of course, as it turned out, he, in fact, did. That's true. People often forget that uh, uh, Douglas actually does get reelected uh, when, when all is said and done. But the, the debate certainly benefited Lincoln, as you say. It make, puts him on a plane with, with Douglas. Now, they agreed to have seven debates uh, throughout the state, and Douglas... Uh, you say says more or less the same thing each time, in, in you know maybe a different order, different uh, versions, but but essentially his his stump speech is fairly consistent. Uh, Lincoln's is not. Why? That that sounds contrary to what we expect from Honest Abe. Um, uh, very good point. I, if you look at the debates and specifically the voting patterns of the districts in which uh, Lincoln Douglas hold the debates. You can start to see a pattern in terms of what Lincoln says and what he doesn't say based on the voting patterns of those districts. And just to go through them real quick, uh, the first debates held in Ottawa. Ottawa is in a congressional district which is fairly evenly matched between the Republican and Democrats based on the 1856 elections. And there you see Lincoln mentioning defending the Declaration of Independence, his interpretation of it, that it extends to all men, which, of course, was contrary to Douglas's interpretation. But you also find that Lincoln is mentioning uh, the idea of superior and inferior races. And, and this, those particular comments are completely lacking in all of Lincoln's writing and speeches before 1858. But he apparently adds it to his repertoire at Ottawa in a way in attempting to straddle the fence, trying to say something that would appeal to everybody. Then when he has the Freeport, an extreme northern part of Illinois, heavily Republican area, you find that Lincoln mentions neither one of those concepts. And although clearly the Declaration of Independence would have had a receptive audience at Freeport, I think Lincoln was looking ahead to the fourth debate, to the Charleston debate, to the first debate in the crucial central area of Illinois that would determine the election. I think he was trying at this point to come up with a cohesive strategy that he could use at all the debates. Then the next debates in Jonesboro, Illinois, extreme southern part of Illinois, heavily Democratic area. Again, Lincoln discusses different topics in Freeport, but no mention of the Declaration of Independence, no mention of superior or inferior races. At Charleston, we see something completely different. Uh, Lincoln makes no mention of the Declaration of Independence, but he basically repeats his remarks at Ottawa concerning superior and inferior races, then moves a little further north to Galesburg, an area that's just slightly Republican. He, for the first time in four debates, defends the Declaration of Independence, 
It does make a comment about the inferior races. At Quincy, he actually shows a consistent pattern for the first time. His remarks at Quincy are strikingly similar to Galesburg. He again defends the Declaration of Independence, but he quotes almost verbatim the superior and inferior races remark he made at Charleston. And then at the last debate at Alton, an area which was extremely similar to the Charleston area in his voting makeup, he actually speaks, he defends the Declaration of Independence, but surprisingly makes no comment about superior and inferior races, even though if he had continued the pattern that he displayed at Charleston, from a political perspective, he should have. Now, this is you know, surprising to, or you know, certainly contrasts with what we think we know about Lincoln, because uh, people today often imagine that Lincoln was um, more modern in his, his racial views. And you can certainly find speeches like the great one at Chicago, where he says, let us discard all this quibbling about this race and that race, and this man and the other man being inferior and must be put in an inferior position. He, he, he wants people to not uh, think in those terms. But you say in several of these debates, he does mention the idea that there are such things as superior and inferior races. What yes, and um, there's no document more sacred to Lincoln in terms of defining the Ameri America's past and its future than the Declaration of Independence. It's, it's truly his guide, his compass. He believes is the cornerstone of America. But he makes these comments at Ottawa and Charleston uh, and Quincy and refers to inferior races at Galesburg. He makes the comment that uh, if we are to have a separation of the races, I as much as Douglas am in favor of my race holding the superior position. And I, I think clearly it was a case where Lincoln was, was saying and he was being advised by many Republicans to make comments like this. After his Charleston debate, David Davis compliments him on his Charleston remarks. And David Davis was a very strong Republican. But I think in looking at these, and I admit my, the interpretation I'm about to give is, is not shared by all Lincoln historians, but I think the key debate is the Alton debate. Because there he should have said, he should have spoken as he did in Charleston, but he doesn't. I think he approaches Alton as a lawyer, with the American people as a jury, and the defendant as a declaration of independence. And I think he made a decision at that point between Quincy and Alton before the last debate that he was going to stand up for what he believed for the reason that he entered this contest against Douglas, and that he was not going to make any more comments concerning superior and inferior races, that he was just going to stand firmly on the ground that all men are created equal meant all men. So this return to his ideological roots that occurs in the seventh debate, uh, what, what do you suppose triggers that between the sixth and seventh debate? There's only one day downtime in between the two debates. Well, that's, that's an excellent point, Jerry. And, and, you know, October 13th, you have the Quincy debate. October 14th, Lincoln writes no letters. He delivers no speeches. And then October 15th in Alton is the debate there. So we do not have, and I mention this in the book, 
we have no written record as to why Lincoln makes this change. But I believe that he looked, I believe that he went through a process of self-examination and he asked himself why he entered the campaign, what he stood for, and he decided to return to the philosophy which had brought him to the campaign, which he began the campaign with, and, he, and speaks that way at Alton. What's also fascinating about the Alton debate is Lincoln actually states in the debate to the audience that he knows they do not believe as he does. What's even more fascinating is he admits that he runs out of material when speaking, and he could very well have been launched into a discussion of superior and inferior races, but he doesn't. Instead, he launches into another attack on the Dred Scott decision. So you see Lincoln at Alton as one who knows the sentiments of the audience he's facing. He knows what he has to say to convince them to vote for him, and yet he rejects all that and instead speaks up for the Declaration of Independence. And on November 2nd, when Illinois voted in the elections, Lincoln won the northern part of Illinois and Douglas won the southern part of Illinois. And in the crucial central area to really determine the election, the Democrats swept that region except for two areas. And one of those was the area containing Charleston, where Lincoln had spoken of the superior and inferior races. Where he had spoke, we had not spoken of that in the central area at Alton. The Democrats prevailed. So his principles uh, were true, but it might have cost him the election. We're going to take a short break again. We're talking with Timothy S. Good, author of the Lincoln-Douglas debates and the making of a president, and we'll talk more when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 